very much. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, uh, the Nikkei 225 is up 1.3%, very close to a 30-year high right now. Down in Australia, the markets reopened there after a long weekend break for the Christmas holidays. It's up a quarter of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to be up about 100 points or so at the open this morning. Uh, Brent crude oil right now trading at $50.98 a barrel. Gold is at $1,880 an ounce. And in the currency markets, the US dollars at 103 and three quarters against the Japanese yen. Um, uh, Richard Harris will be here on Money Talk tomorrow and Thursday. I'll be back on Thursday night, though, for Ring in 21 from 10 p.m. all the way through until 2 a.m. New Year's Day on Radio 3, welcoming in the new year with plenty of your messages and dedications and some of the best dance and disco tracks as well from across seven decades. So do please join me for that. Ring in 21 from 10 p.m. on New Year's Eve. Back chat's coming up in just a moment. Uh, Jim Gordon, Ada Wong will be your host this morning. The weather forecast, uh, mainly fine, visibility relatively low in some areas. Maximum temperature is going to be about 24 degrees, but it is going to become appreciably colder and rather windy tomorrow and on Thursday with temperatures falling to around about 7 or 8 degrees on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, a couple of degrees lower in the new territories. The temperature right now is 19 degrees and it's 83% relative humidity. <laughs> 8.31, here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. A Shamshupo district councillor is demanding answers over whether the government was aware of the historical significance of a century-old disused reservoir that was being demolished. Work has been halted and the Antiquities and Monuments Office has been called in to assess the site at Bishop Hill after bulldozers uncovered Roman-style arches. Councillor Calvin Ho says the structure is mostly in perfect condition with less than 10% destroyed. He's requested a district council meeting in January to discuss the site. At the very beginning, when the Water Supply Department asked the District Council to agree their repairment of the reservoir, we don't know what is inside the reservoir. We just know there are some structural problems which will cause dangers to the resident nearby. That's why we agreed the department to start the project. But after we know, oh, there are some historical construction in the reservoir, then we have to think, oh, why the water supply department didn't know the situation inside? Britain has recorded more than 41,000 new cases of COVID-19, the country's highest daily total since the pandemic began. Hospitals and ambulance services are under increasing pressure, particularly in London and the South East, as the BBC's Hugh Pym reports. There was a stark message from one East London hospital today. The chief executive said in a tweet that nurses and doctors were incredibly stretched caring for very sick patients and no one should underestimate the impact the infection could have. At other hospitals in the city, COVID patient numbers also continued to rise with the variant of the virus found initially in the southeast of England spreading more rapidly. One major London trust, Imperial College Healthcare, reported that there were 170 COVID patients at their hospital on Christmas Eve. By today, that had increased to 242. The head of the World Health Organization has urged that countries not be punished for transparently sharing their new scientific findings on COVID-19. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said the WHO was working closely with scientists in the UK and South Africa who were carrying out studies to guide the next steps in tackling new variants of the virus. Science drives our actions. 
and I would like to thank both those countries for testing and tracking new variants and underscore the importance of increasing genomic sequencing capacity worldwide. Only if countries are looking and testing effectively will you be able to pick up variants and adjust strategies to cope. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. Uh, I'm Jim Gould, sitting in for Hugh Chiverton, and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. So on today's Back Chat, uh, we're turning our attention overseas and talking about the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union. Although Britain officially left the bloc early this year, it's taken 10 months of negotiations to come up with a post-Brexit trade deal. That was uh, finally agreed on Christmas Eve, just days before the current transition period comes to an end. It's now been approved by EU member states, but it still needs the backing of the European and British parliaments. And while that is expected to go through, UK businesses have been warned to prepare for disruption from January the 1st, at least in the early stages of the new reality. And analysts are still working out what the longer-term implications will be for various types of business and uh, relations between the UK and the EU and indeed other parts of the world, including Asia, our part of the world, and also within the UK itself. We'd like to know what you think about it all. You can get involved, uh, leave uh, a message on our Facebook page, um, backchat um, on RTHK Radio 3, or email us at backchat at rthk.hk, that's backchat at rthk.hk, or feel free to give us a call. We're on 233-88266. And uh, joining us uh, this morning, uh, we, have, uh, we have two guests on the line. Just before we get to, to our guests, who I'll introduce in a moment, uh, a quick reminder about our Backchat uh, Person of the Year uh, 2020, uh, which is uh, running at the moment. You have the opportunity to vote for who you think is the person, Backchat Person of the Year out of a, a list of 10 nominations. Um, here we go, quickly run through them. The 10 are, they're not all people, by the way. Um, uh, first of all, Peter Choi, who was a veteran of the Battle of Hong Kong in World War II, who died uh, during 2020. Uh, the Funling Golf Course, uh, Dr. Chuang Chuk Kwan, the head of the Centre for Health Protection's Commun Communicable uh, Diseases branch, who gives the uh, daily briefings on the COVID situation. The Unknown Cleaners, who've kept uh, Hong Kong clean and safe uh, during the year. Professor Benjamin Cowling, epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, who's uh, spoken on this programme a, a number of times. Apple Daily, the popular newspaper which has been in the news itself during the year. Uh, David Webb, shareholder, activist and commentator. Carrie Lam, the chief executive. The frontline health workers uh, in Hong Kong, who've been um, doing such a, a sterling job throughout the year. And uh, Nabella Kosa. Uh, RTHK reporter who's uh, also been in the news. Uh, go to our Radio 3 uh, homepage, uh, have a look, uh, yeah, follow, follow the link. Um, there's, uh, it'll ask you to uh, uh, follow a little verification process, but it's quite simple, and then you can vote for your person of the year. The results will be announced next Monday, the 4th of January. 
Okay, um, so joining us this morning for our discussion, we have uh, Brian Wong, the founding editor-in-chief at uh, Oxford Political Review and a Time magazine columnist and also uh, Professor Sandra Marco-Colino, who's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and uh, who's uh, an expert on European uh, business law. Um, good morning to both of you. Good morning. Perhaps, uh, morning. Pr- good morning. Uh, perhaps, uh, Brian Wong, perhaps if we can start with you. Um, so, uh, so, zero tariffs in this uh, trade agreement, um, but many other question marks still to be sorted out. Uh, what's your first overall impression of it? I mean, my first overall impression um, of this is basically, I think, an affirmation of uh, what I've consistently maintained about, I guess, the Brexit negotiations and state of Brexit since uh, Theresa May's, I suppose, uh, dis- or, or Boris Johnson's ascent to power, i.e. Brexit clearly was a decision that uh, wasn't in any country's interest, in particular Britain. And in terms of negotiations, though, the past six months have certainly done a lot of damage mitigation or reduced or ensured that as far as the trade deals would go, you know, Britain would at least get a better deal than expected at the end of May's tenure. And there's several observations I make on that front. So, obviously, the tariff situation uh, uh, remains to be settled. And, of course, the the movement, or the freedom of movement and migration, and the changes on that front would certainly please no one, in the sense that whilst there are increased restrictions and added sovereignty devolved back into the hands of Britain, given that it's left the Union, there remains still the question of, A, how the refugees question would be settled, and secondly, where or not, you know, when it comes to skilled labour and also migrants that Britain wants to absorb and also attract, it's possible and tenable for them to do so under new arrangements where very clearly you know, there's an end to the free movement clause given that Britain is no longer within the Union. But I think the greater attention should be paid to questions like, A, the issue... Oops, sorry, is that a... Never mind. That, that's a bizarre glitch. Never mind. Uh, can you guys still hear me? Yeah, Hello? sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 right. So I think greater attention should be paid to several areas, actually. The first area being fisheries. And, uh, this was obviously a thorny issue that a lot of Brexiteers uh, cared quite deeply about, both as a political talking point and also as an economic issue. Uh, I guess it's sensitive to the hearts. And Britain left the arrangements and the talks with more than it could have hoped for, I reckon. Uh, what would be in terms of a, a reduction in EU's sort of, uh, fishing activities and also fishing volume within the region, even though it's not as substantial, and it, a decrease as a lot of the hardline Brexiteers would have hoped for in terms of uh, the access to the fishing market. So that's one. Well, but also, second, yeah, sorry, so also on fishing, the, the UK fishing industry has sort of characterised this as a bit of a sellout, hasn't it? It is a sellout, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, the promise of uh, restoring fishing rights, absolute fishing rights to the, the hands of British uh, fishermen clearly didn't happen, but that's, I think, consistent with just the overarching trend of a lot of Brexit talks where what was promised in the 2016 referendum clearly weren't delivered. So so you can also look at uh, the ECJ and and, and the extent to which there's still implicit, you know, legal harmonisation and legal stipulations and requirements that Britain must abide by, even though on paper, yes, you know, ECJ no longer has the competence, competence to adjudicate. Yeah, European Court of Justice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. Sorry, Mm -hmm. yeah, the European Mm -hmm. Court of Justice. And 
So you've got the ECJ, you've got the fisheries. And then finally, on, on I guess, I, I want to flag here the Irish geopolitical question as well, in that, you know, Boris Johnson obviously found a solution, and I, I'll give him credit where credit's due, that the solution meant that we avoided, I suppose, uh, a hard border, you know, within Ireland, and also presumably the political troubles and, and turmoil that would come along with that. But, but in the process of seeking this current compromise, he threw DP and his, his so-called allies under the bus. And that, that's only expected, given that, you know, there's no longer that arrangement between DEP and the Tories with respect to the government's operations. So I think that these three areas, you know, there's the ECJ, the fisheries, and also Ireland, on top of the tariff question, are all indicators at large that Brexit under-delivered for many of its core entrenched supporters, but at the same time, majority of Britain would probably be feeling rather glad that they've just gotten the negotiations at least over and done with cursorily. Where not the outcomes of play in the country's favour remains to be seen. I'm quite pessimistic, but obviously there might be signs of optimism for those who are uh, more focused on what Britain can now do with forming new trade alliances and trade creations. Yeah, there was certainly a lot of Brexit fatigue uh, in the UK uh, over the past few years. But uh, uh, Sandra, Marco Colino, um, what do you think? I, I mean, do you think one side did better than the other? Was it, was it win-win or was lose-lose? Well, I think that, um, I mean, one thing that we need to remember is that actually um, the words of Liam Fox, um, uh, Brexiteer and a member of the Conservative mm. Party, saying that this would be one of the easiest trade deals in human history, I think I've come back to haunt him. Um, and it's taken almost something like seven, 1,700 days to be negotiated. Mm. Um, so, yes, it's been very complex. And I think that um, if you look at the tweets and the information given out by both parties, after the agreement was reached is that there's a sense of uh, triumphant um, so th th there's this feeling that um, it was so politicized that neither party wanted to to lose and I think that this is what has made reaching a deal so complicated um, and what the deal really does if we look at what what it actually says um, is actually it leaves a lot of things to be determined in the future um, there is a lot of committees that are going to have to be set up and they will be making a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions um, and it's very difficult to know how they will be accountable but anyway we'll, we'll, that will be um, seen in the future um, but um, that feeling that um, nobody could lose um, so the, the British government um, there was some red lines that they couldn't cross and the same for Europe um, and that I think made it very very difficult to find you know, some common ground. And yes, I mean, uh, I think the deal virtually averts disaster and averts this very difficult situation um, where, you know, the EU and the UK are still very close trading partners. So I think something like 43% of the UK exports are to the EU and about 52% of UK imports are from the EU. Um, so um, clearly they need to have a, a close trade relationship. Um, and yet, you know, if you don't want to be bound by um, the European Court of Justice, if you don't want to pay the fee that is required to have access to the, to the common market, um, it just becomes very difficult to start making exceptions. And the EU, of course, didn't want that. Um, and yes, this is where you know, all the tensions and all the, all the difficulties have come from. And of course, the, the, the thrust of the agreement is goods in, tr uh, in trade. I mean, it doesn't cover services, does it? And services are 80% of the UK economy. 
Exactly. So, I mean, uh, if you look at, for example, I, I remember reading this week also that um, Japanese car makers have welcomed the deal um, because, like you say, goods are covered and there will be zero tariffs. That was extremely important. Um, now, we have to remember that a lot of um, non-EU companies, what they did is they established themselves um, in an EU country and a lot of uh, Japanese car makers are actually in the UK, um, meaning that uh, without a deal, they would face tariffs to access a huge market of 27 countries. Um, so let re let's remember that, as I say, part of why they were cited in the UK is because a product um, is where the last significant transformation has taken place. So the parts might be, the car parts might be made in Japan, China, wherever, but since they were put together in the UK and the car is made in the UK, then it's also then, it, until now, it was also an EU car. So that meant free flow around the entire European Union. Um, now, this is okay. Um, this has been preserved by the current deal. But services, like you say, have been left out. So, for instance, banks. What happens with banks now? Um, some of them have, are domiciled in the UK. Um, but it's not entirely clear whether they will be able to offer services across the euro area. So um, it might be possible for them to, to, to actually, on an individual basis, get access. But, of course, this can take some time. Um, they might need some licenses to operate in the EU. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very, very unclear. And, and then, you know, there are also uh, professional qualifications that are not automatically recognized. And um, I, I note that, uh, I mean, from a more people angle, um, the UK is now out of the university exchange program, Erasmus. What, what sort of implications um, do you foresee? Well, actually, I have to say that I'm, I, I did, uh, I, I, I am an Erasmus um, student, so I did my Erasmus back when I was a, a university student. I went to Germany for a whole year, and I also benefited as, as when, I were, when I was working in Glasgow, at the University of Glasgow, there's also um, teacher mobility programs. Um, of course, it's very sad um, that uh, the UK, I mean, if you look at what Boris Johnson was saying only in January um, this year, he was saying, well, of course, we will stay in Erasmus, there's no reason why we should leave, um, and uh, now that's not going to be the case. Now, the problem is that, um, of course, um, there are other schemes. Um, it's not in, impossible to set up uh, exchange programs with, with universities. Um, but, of course, it's difficult um, to establish. It takes some time. It requires bilateral efforts. Um, and I know the UK has, has said that they're going to have the Turing scheme, a new scheme that we, we have very, very few details. And they released some information recently. Um, but it is a shame. I mean, if you think of the amount of students that benefited from this opportunity to go to another European country um, and spend one semester, two semesters studying there, learning the language, um, you know, also the culture. Um, and this is now, it's, it's, of course, as I say, there will be exchange opportunities for sure, um, but it will be difficult to establish that all again. They're talking about the expense of the program, but it, it is really unclear also how the new scheme will save any money. They're already talking about investing hundreds of, of, of um, pounds on, in uh, hundreds of uh, millions of pounds. So it's really unclear how this saves money um, and how this is a better alternative. Um, but yeah, I, I feel personally, of course, that this is a bit of a shame because as somebody who's benefited from this personally, yes. Okay, uh, let's ask uh, Brian Wong about that as well. Uh, the UK no longer being in the Erasmus student exchange system. What's, what's that like to mean for the UK education industry, which, of course, uh, uh, um, you know, has been quite a success story? Well, I think the first thing I'll note is Erasmus Plus is a very instrumental force 
um, of uh, contributes towards the, the education sector, both in terms of business, but also more, more generally in terms of the innovation and the human capital and, and in, in all honesty, the inability of Britain to participate in the programme would, in my opinion, precipitate a pretty difficult period, at the very least over the next two decades, for a lot of the E-centred scholarship, especially in the sciences and STEM, where Erasmus has played a pivotal role in just bringing in and importing Europeans of talents, as well as uh, allowing for field practice and also uh, all sorts of internships that British students have had in European corporations. But with all that said, uh, at the end of the day, I'm still optimistic in the sense that Britain obviously has access, uh, given the, the, the entrenched uh, historical advantage and also the institutions that it has, uh, Oxbridge, LSE, the Russell Group and whatnot, to the international market of students, researchers and scholars. So yes, it is certainly true that not being an Erasmus would, would dent its appeal towards EU members, but uh, on a more, I guess, positive note, I suppose, it is the possibility of attracting more scholars, especially in light of the ongoing US-China tensions in the Cold War, attracting, say, Chinese students and scholars who are, I guess, relocating from the States, or alternatively, uh, individuals or scholars from the Commonwealth countries with which Britain still maintains pretty decent ties overall. So, yes, there's a downside, but uh, I suppose the downside could be partially compensated if Britain were to introduce more aggressively you know, positive and attractive measures when it comes to visas and also other arrangements in drawing in talent. Where not Boris Johnson, though, as a government, would, would bring in these measures uh, remains to be seen. And I, I'm, uh, I suppose, uh, less optimistic on that front. Um, Brian Wong, do, do you foresee uh, a lot of UK business uh, moving or relocating part of their business uh, to EU member states so that they can offer services uh, to their EU customers? For example, I see that TV services um, will now no longer be able to uh, offer pan-European services to European viewers after this Brexit deal? So the, the issue with relocation as a move in general is that with the added uncertainty now, both in terms of ECJ but also in terms of legal jurisdiction and dispute resolution, I think a lot of British firms would be hesitant to relocate at, at least all of a sudden within the next three to five years so abruptly uh, to the EU. Where not there's a long-term shift, though, I think, is a more interesting question. And I personally think, uh, yes, that, that a mirage is likely, whether it be because of, you know, as you said, the larger markets, you know, with respect to the TV, but also digital communications at large, and also phone networks, or alternatively, if you're not looking at service providers, just merely some high-end goods providers as well, right? The markets that you offers and also the, the customers arrangements from within means that for sectors like, um, say, uh, biotech, for instance, uh, particularly pertinent given COVID, uh, the EU remains a far more lucrative market than Britain will be. But with that said, there are also other sectors that I think Britain would be able to maintain simply because the, the transitory costs are too high. So these are sectors where Britain has had and still holds comparative competitive advantages in, whether it be sectors pertaining to, uh, funnily enough, 
sports is one of them, actually, and also the sports clubs, uh, football clubs in particular, or alternatively, the higher education sector and the education industry, and finally, uh, particular niches in the secondary uh, sector or the secondary market that uh, the north of England, despite you know, the closing factories and also the, the transition in the economy, uh, Britain remains a leading producer of these goods. And it's unlikely that relocation happens for these factories simply because of the various entrenched factors that render Britain the environment where business is best conducted. So some businesses will move, some won't. Obviously, the Emirates would be and deal a heavy blow to Britain, but the blow is softened and mitigated by, I suppose, it's seeking to explore uh, alternative trade partnerships and deals and also a new modus operandi with uh, countries like Japan. CF the recently signed agreement, and I suppose with China, although that also pens domestic politics within Britain over the next few years. OK, just looking ahead to, to the next few days, uh, uh, the UK... Uh Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove has uh, told businesses to be prepared. He says there'll, there'll be some disruption and practical and procedural changes. I mean, uh, new checks will be required uh, from January the 1st. Um, 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 Sandra, what sort of picture are you expecting to see then? I mean, I guess the problem is the uncertainty now that uh, there's a, uh, just... Um, I mean, I guess not everybody has read the trade deal and... Uh, um, it's, it's expected also that a lot of businesses will just hope to continue as usual. Um, and more than anything, what we, what the expectation is that there is more paperwork to be dealt with. Um, and that, of course, can cause delays. Um, if you think of the amount of um, traffic, of, uh, the amount of um, uh, lorries if we've seen these days uh, crossing the border, um, of course, that means that any little um, issue, any little um, uh, requirements, um, if they're not uh, completely ready, um, it means that, of course, um, this will lead to delays, of course. And uh, as we know, for some of the things that are being delivered, um, this is a, a significant problem. Um, so, yes, uh, it's not entirely clear how, how these things will be resolved. Um, it's just also not knowing, right, how the system is going to work. As I said, a lot of the, the decisions have simply been postponed, have simply been delegated on these um, mm -hmm. committees that need to be set up. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's just, um, I guess, getting used to the new reality. And, and one very apparent thing is that on the 1st of January, UK nationals will no longer be able to use the EU passport queues uh, at uh, European airports. That, I mean, that must be a shock. And also, you know, UK nationals no longer have the freedom to work, study and start a business or live in the EU automatically, right? Yes, so, I mean, uh, the thing is that, so, um, I mean, it's not entirely clear about the, the queues because, you know, sometimes they, it's, it's EU and, you know, some other countries. Um, so I don't know exactly where they will place, um, you know, UK citizens right now. Um, but um, definitely, I mean, one of the issues that has been talked about is, um, I mean, you, you get your 90 days uh, visa to get into the, to the EU um, and any short-term uh, business visitors, for instance, if you're going to a conference or if you're um, going to some kind of exhibition, that should be fine. 
But if you're going to um, offer any goods or services, um, then indeed you might actually be required to present a work visa. Um, so um, I think one example that was given in the press, if, if you're a model and um, you're going to, um, you know, you, you're, you're simply attending a, a, a recruitment event, etc., that's fine. Um, but if you're actually going to be taking part in, in, the, in a catwalk uh, show or something, then you might indeed be required to present a, a work visa. Uh, uh, Brian Wong? Yeah. Yeah, what, what, what sort of scenario are you expecting on January the 1st? Uh, long, well, long queues of trucks once again <laughs> at the uh, uh, yeah, Dover that, and other ports? Yeah. That's certainly one. Uh, I think, um, ironically, I suppose, uh, the, the COVID pandemic has certainly adapted what would have otherwise been a rather sort of a stark and a bleak start to the year when it comes to. Uh, precisely as you, you said, uh, that the passport issue and also the, the travel barriers that would now be erected naturally. Uh, so, so with on, on top of the lorries, I suppose we can expect heightened uh, restrictions and barriers. Obviously, now accompanied by you know the quarantine orders and also public health measures uh, with regards to British arrivals. So, so one thing's for sure, you know, not only would British travellers, citizens, no longer be considered uh, as as members of the EU, but, but also uh, they would now be subject to a lot of the rather harsh quarantine requirements and stipulations, especially given the resurgence of the fourth wave now. So that's the short term. In terms of medium to long term impact, uh, two things really. The first is where would the migrants and where would the workers now go and what would their status be? So it, there has been, I think, a an intermediary compromise arrangement worked out as a part of the deal that there would be some leeway and some window for British citizens who are currently working in the EU, you know, to, to transit towards a new arrangement or a new visa arrangement rather. But the transition process itself is going to exclude, is going to shut out certain folks who can't necessarily meet the skills requirements or the thresholds for now the skilled migrant categorisation that EU's provided and offered there. So what would happen to them? Okay. Would they float back to Britain? Okay, okay. Yeah. thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. So, sorry, I have to uh, cut you off there, uh, Brian Wong, because we're coming up to the nine o'clock news. Thanks very much for joining us. So Brian Wong there, founding editor-in-chief at of Oxford Political Review and Time magazine columnist. Uh, Sandra Marco Colino is going to stay with us. Uh, uh, so uh, same to our listeners. Um, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back after 9.03, currently 19 degrees, humidity 80%. The Medical Director of Public Health England said the 41,000 new cases was of growing concern. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Backchat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about uh, the post-Brexit trade deal, which was finally signed between the European Union and the United Kingdom on Christmas Eve. Um, just before we get back to that, um, a couple of emails here. Um, 
this one relates to another subject, um, the, uh, the case of the 12 Hong Kong people who have uh, been de detained for several months uh, in the mainland and who were in court yesterday. Um, Andrew writes, uh, so the 12 bail jumpers are now claiming to be victims. You couldn't make this up. It's all too common a stance with uh, so-called uh, activists who do not have the balls to stand up for their apparent uh, beliefs when apprehended for knowingly breaking the law. Spineless creeps. Keep them in jail in the mainland. That's from Andrew. Um, our main topic this morning, of course, as I say, uh, the Brexit trade deal. Um, this one from Anthony who writes, uh, I blame David Cameron for all this. Uh, David Cameron, of course, being the former uh, UK Conservative Prime Minister who instigated uh, the uh, referendum on Brexit. Yeah, Anthony says, I blame David Cameron for all this. He should never have gambled. You can't just do a yes-no referendum without a place or agenda. Four years of time totally wasted. Somewhere, Nigel Farage and his Brexit party members are waving Union Jacks and yelling, thank God we're leaving. Thanks for nothing, Dave. Well, um, we're joined on the line now by John Bruce of JB Advisory Services, who's a, a Scottish businessman who's been in Hong Kong for 25 years. And also on the line, uh, we have Professor Sandra Marco Colino, Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Law at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and who is an expert on European business law. Um, John Bruce, uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, so, um, one element, of course, of this, uh, 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 well, the whole Brexit uh, programme is that it's not very well received uh, in Scotland, is it? And the uh, Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has been making that point again in recent days. And now uh, talk is re-emerging about another possible referendum on Scottish independence. Um, what do you think? Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, um, to yourself, Chairman, to Sandra, belated Christmas greetings, and I hope with 2021 is a lot better than what we've had in 2020. Yeah. But yes, touching touching upon um, then Scotland and Brexit. I mean, no constituency in Scotland voted for Brexit in the referendum. No individual constituency. Um, we have the problem with the Internal Markets Bill, which is um, under the guise, apparently, from Westminster of protecting things um, with the withdrawal agreement, taking powers back from the devolved governments to Westminster. Um, and no time limit on this. So, yes, and Scotland has existed very much as a small nation with expertise, you know, available land and everything, very much a gateway into um, the common market or into the European Union. I shouted, let, let me just double back slightly and say, thank goodness we had an agreement. Although, to me, it's very much an agreement not to have no agreement because so many things have been pushed down the road. But at least, as, as you enumerated in the first half of the programme, the automobile industry, some of the pure disasters have been avoided, which, I mean, it would have been catastrophic, I think, for Britain if that hadn't happened. But no, in Scotland, um, it's very much provided more impetus um, for a second referendum, um, I think, which will happen this year. Um, the polls are showing consistent support. I mean, up in the 56, I think, 17, 18 polls in a row have shown a mid-50s majority for independence. Obviously, the, 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 the government machine shall move back in. It will, these, these gaps will close. Um, but I, mean, I think it's horrific, though, just to touch upon this. I noticed it was actually the uh, SDLP in Northern Ireland and said this is the biggest creation of trade barriers in modern history. And, you know, I, I think we have to now get on and make things work. 
But it's really disturbing that we've actually created all of these barriers in a world where trade is the lifeblood of countries. So generally, um, um, Scotland's horrified. I think a lot of small businesses are horrified because, as Michael Gove said, he's telling people to prepare for disruption and problems. Well, they've had many years to actually have get this right, but people have still not had actual details of what they've got to do to make get their goods across borders and such like. So, yes, great not to have a great to have some sort of agreement, but so many things pushed down the road, it's going to be a problem. And for Scotland, it's very much the catalyst um, for a second referendum. And at least in Northern Ireland, as you mentioned, there, there, there's going to be no return to a hard border. I mean, there must be. Yeah. Jim, Jim, of, I think yeah. I think I touched upon this at length um, when I was on last game. That was a horrific cost mm. because. Um, there, there still remain a, an undercurrent of, I actually call them psychopaths, who would react to this and find it, find some sort of justification to go back to, to the troubles. Hopefully that can be avoided. Still, wait, I think that Ireland itself, Greater Ireland, and Northern Ireland and, and the Republic, this in itself is going to create somewhat some impetus towards referendums of a united Ireland. Not, none of it is easy, but yes, absolutely no hard border in, the, in Ireland is really vital. Hmm. Um, what do you think uh, are the implications for this part of the world? I mean, I, I see, for instance, uh, that uh, uh, EU ambassadors, um, they, they've uh, given their backing to the plan to uh, have an investment agreement uh, with China. Um, it seems that that accord is almost in place. Um, the UK, now that it's out of uh, the EU, has been going around uh, trying to do its own uh, its own uh, trade and business deals uh, um, agreed one with Singapore quite recently. It's been talking to Turkey. Um, are there any sort of direct implications uh, here for Hong Kong? I think obviously the British government's in a difficult position um, vis-à-vis Hong Kong just because of what's happened in the last well. I mean, I'd say that the agreement with Singapore, the potential agreement with Turkey, frankly, not just what the EU had. Um, but yeah, losing Scotland um, has huge. Um, relationship with China. Obviously, governments, it's going to be very hard for governments to support them until we get some sort of trade agreement. And um, we've got to hope that with the troubles of Brexit behind and obviously with COVID, which is actually short circuited anything that's been happening, we, we have to get um, British and China relations back in a, a firmer footing because at the moment, obviously, with the EU agreeing this agreement with China. Um, I just, I mean, I'm sorry, I struggle to see what the benefits are from leaving the EU apart from this, um, the sovereignty, which, of course, I totally understand people really want it. But in terms of the problems it creates, I mean, you've got all sorts of ideas, notions, things that you hear. I mean, the cost of that, the vaccine, how we could have joined the EU scheme and we can get it. So I'm off subject there. What it means um, for this part of the world, Scottish businesses, British businesses thrive in Hong Kong. They always have. Hong Kong is a great place to do business companies, Scottish companies, Scottish educational institutions have a huge presence in Hong Kong and across the border. That will continue to happen, but we would really like our governments to get on a firmer footing. Um, Professor Marco Colino, um, so so is is the UK now going to have to try to uh, uh, improve relations uh, with China? I think that now, um, of course, it's it's all about bilateral relations for for the UK, um, and uh, it's not that it has to improve, but I guess um, since 
perhaps the, the trade deal that, that it has now with, with its closest trading partner is weaker than it used to be. Um, anything that it can, any cooperation that it can strengthen will be in its benefit. And of course, China is, is also a huge market um, that is in the interest of, of, of um, any other market to be in, in, a, in, in a good relationship with. Um, I think that the, 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 the most, the biggest effort, though, and, and this is um, if you, I think Yanis Varoufakis um, said that... Um, the the former know, Greek it, finance but, minister, right? He, he was the sorry? Greek. He was the Greek. Yes, the Greek finance he was minister. Greek, yeah. uh, well, he was the minister of uh, the, the economic minister mm-hmm. for a while, um, and he was saying that um, it's, it seems that uh, it's a bit of a paradox that um, it, it, the UK could be investing resources looking to the rest of the world, but it's actually going to have to spend more resources in over this decade um, in intense negotiations with Brussels and dedicating a lot of its resources with Brussels and the European Union. And actually, maybe the UK would have been able to, um, as, as it did previously as a, as a, as a member of the, of the EU, um, to develop these relationships. And now it's had to make such a huge effort um, to be in discussions with Brussels. And I think one good thing of having a deal now also is that at least we can put that behind us um, and you know we can move on. And I think everybody is, is, was willing to do that. And I think that what this deal does in this sense is, well, it leaves the, the, the nitty-gritty to these um, committees that can you know just hopefully adopt um, pragmatic decisions um, away from you know this very uh, debate that was so politicized and where emotions were running so high and I think that is maybe to be welcome. Um, we, we've talked about you know what UK will miss out. Uh, what about Europe? Um, uh, what will Europeans uh, miss out uh, in this deal, the Brexit deal? Well, I think first of all, of course, just we've been saying that the EU is a very important trade partner for the UK, and it works both ways. It's reciprocal, um, and of course, um, yes, it's it's not in the interest of of the EU to have uh, trade barriers with the UK. Um, but also, I think that um, in a way, perhaps the biggest problem for the EU is that it has perhaps. Um, given a, a little bit of a bitter taste to this integration process that w- had been doing relatively well. Of course, it's always had ch- challenges. And there are many things, you know, as somebody who has been looking at, at European uh, Union developments for more than 20 years, there are many things that could be done better. Um, and, um, of course, things that, you know, you learn also because it's such a new um, process um, it's so unprecedented that you, you learn by doing most of the time. Um, and I think that um, it's been a bit of a disappointment to have such an emblematic and such an important member state um, leave. And, of course, the question is, uh, the, the, biggest, the big question here was whether that would uh, tarnish or whether that would really hurt um, the European integration project and the future of, of integration. Um, so far, that hasn't been the case, but, of course, a lot of question marks are still remaining in that regard. OK, um, John Bruce, you talked about the, the UK being in a difficult position. Um, of course, there's also the United States factor, isn't there? Because, uh, because President Trump, who's on his way out, has been quite an enthusiastic uh, supporter of Brexit. But it's rather different with the incoming President uh, Joe Biden, who's, uh, who's also warned that you know, if, if Brexit threatens uh, the, uh, the peace accord in Ireland... You can forget about a trade deal. So, how is uh, how's the UK government going to have to approach that? Well, um, yes, 
Joe Biden has shown that he's very unhappy with the potential situation in Ireland. Um, he, the, it's obvious that with the Democratic Party, a trade deal with the UK is, doesn't seem to be a great priority. I mean, the benefits to them are, are, are fairly insignificant compared to other things, obviously very important for the UK. Um, but I think um, a Biden presidency has got to be good. I've got great respect for the abilities of British diplomacy overseas. Diplomats like be talking behind the scenes, much as Sandra was talking about committees dealing with the nitty-gritty of the things that haven't been established in this agreement, but it will be away from the febrile politics and it will just be, let's talk about how we can make things work. I think that we're in a better position for having sensible discussions. But no, I, I feel that we're in a I find it very difficult as it's part of the UK and I, mean, and I think you know my previous position, I, I am a supporter of Scottish independence so I, it, it just makes me feel more that we have to go down the route of attempting to rejoin the EU uh, as a smaller nation which in itself perhaps is not ideal but you know we, we can rejoin this great trading bloc and, and despite the problems that we all have with the EU, I think I've always said before we joined the common market and we ended up in the EU and Sandra actually referred to the together and the, the homogenisation of Europe, which is perhaps what the biggest objection was to the people that voted for Brexit. Um, but no, I think that America would present a problem if Trump had been re-elected, despite his being in favour of Brexit, because I just don't really think we would have got anywhere with the Make America Great Again um, one-sided point of view with a president that didn't seem to understand trade. But yes, that, that we, have, we have lots of problems that I think actually are in the long run in the bigger picture. A democratic presidency, a democratic party will probably help us, despite the fact that obviously vis-a-vis trying to deal with China, the Huawei situation, which became a real problem, all of these things still exist. Okay, well, here's uh, an email from Craig. Uh, Craig writes, uh, some of my American friends can't understand why I support Brexit, so I always ask them the following. Currently, the US, Canada and Mexico enjoy free trade between the three nations. As an American, how would you feel if that trading bloc expanded into passing laws and imposing rules on the US, which were voted on by Canada and Mexico? In all cases, my American friends wouldn't sign up for that, and I think this would be a complete violation of US sovereignty. That is exactly what happened to the EU. It morphed from a trading bloc into a political union. That is why I support Brexit. I have no issue with barrier-free trade and even standards. However, the issue of sovereignty is the real issue Brexit answers. There is nothing to prevent the UK from adopting Euro standards in exactly the same way um, Hong Kong does, for example, with vehicle emission standards. Our government here mandates imported cars meet certain EU standards. We didn't contribute to the formation of those standards and probably just downloaded some PDF from an EU website. Uh, that's from uh, uh, Craig. Um, uh, Sandra, how about that? Uh, I mean, um, we talked about uh, you know difficult uh, little sort of detailed issues uh, up ahead, but isn't there the possibility there of of smoothing things out and uh, making things uh, run more easily? Well, frankly, can I just say also that I think this is one of the big misconceptions of what perhaps the European project is or has been. Um, of course, I mean, the UK has remained sovereign throughout. That's the first thing that we need to remember. Um, now, the problem is that once you um, open the borders, right, and you say um, you, you, you uh, have free movement of persons, of 
um, goods, of capitals and of services, um, you need some common rules because just to give you an example, if um, a Spanish bike manufacturer makes bicycles according to Spanish law, but it turns out that France has a completely different uh, safety regulation, um, then of course those bicycles will not be able to be imported into France. So um, what has happened is that Europe normally just sets some common standards. Now, it doesn't mean that Europe absorbs and, and takes over and, and just regulates that issue. It just means that it says, well, um, at least uh, the bikes that meet, that meet these requirements or, or national legislation must um, allow bikes that meet certain requirements to uh, flow uh, around the, the entire EU. Um, there is always a need to have some common um, uh, product standards and some common rules in order to be able to, to realize that goal of the single market. And I think it was uh, published recently that um, how many times the UK had voted. I mean, you know that the laws are actually voted by the European, uh, by, sorry, by the council, which um, the UK is represented in that council. And the, I think the UK in thousands and thousands of times that they uh, voted for legislation, I think they were, they only voted against um, or legislation was adopted with uh, the UK voting against it. I think something like 40 occasions maximum, which is nothing. It's negligible. Um, and to say that somehow the UK had these rules imposed is, is simply absurd. It's not knowing how these rules were even adopted. Um, they were voted by the UK government, um, uh, but sorry, by, by, the, by the UK in the council, which is um, the, one of the legislative bodies in the UK. Um, and yes, it is necessary to have these common standards because otherwise, as I say, the single market just doesn't work. And uh, the, 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 the advantages of this trade block would just wouldn't materialize. Um, but again, uh, in everything else, the treaties are very clear that the national sovereignty remains. Um, and there is nothing, for instance, I've, I've had this debate also over dinners and things. The, the European Court of Justice um, is normally uh, asked to interpret European law, but only EU law and only the things regulated in the treaties. Um, and even then, when it has to make a decision relating to national proceedings, all it does is it explains how EU law should be interpreted. And then the matter goes back to the UK courts and they decide on that matter. So UK courts, again, are sovereign. All they are bound by is the interpretation of EU law given by the European courts. That's, that's, right. that's the only issue. So, um, so the UK is now free to diverge from EU standards and rules and approaches. And there will be consequences, right? So they, they will have to renegotiate uh, with the European Union from the outside. And um, as you said, um, you know, there'll be many committees to be formed. How difficult is it to negotiate with the EU from the outside? And um, would the uh, positioning of Switzerland be, be of help? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, the, the, yes, the thing is, I would say that the first thing that to be to remember is that, yes, the UK is free to set its own standards. But if the UK, if we said earlier that um, about 43 percent of exports um, go to the EU, if they want to continue to export, they will have to meet um, the EU requirements like all third countries. So they will very likely most companies will still have to abide by EU uh, standards if they want to continue to export into the EU. Um, um, and you're talking about the, the Switzerland deal, and we, you know, there's so many options that were on the table, but 
Switzerland, for instance, is part of Schengen to begin with. So mm. um, there is, um, uh, uh, for instance, free movement of persons to a certain level, something that the UK didn't want to accept. Um, it's part of the European uh, economic area. Um, and uh, of course, this is not, uh, and it's also part of the of the European Free Trade Agreement. So um, these are not things that the UK was willing to to uh, take part in. Um, and um, you know, Switzerland still pays uh, some money, and um, it still is in accepts some uh, of the European rules in order to benefit from um, you know greater or advanced trade advantages with the EU bloc. Um, so if, if the UK didn't want to accept that, of course, it's very difficult to, to, to uh, have some similar deal. Uh, John Bruce, hi. Um, so the UK Chancellor, um, the Finance Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, he's been trying to reassure the City of London that uh, it won't suffer any damage because of the deal. And he's talking about uh, doing things differently and making the City of London the most attractive place to list at new companies anywhere in the world. Um, what are the chances of that, in your view? Yes, yes um, very quickly, Jim, um, just on what your American caller said. Um, I can understand what you're saying, but I think the, the big sort of the analogy here is that America is the big fish in that the North American free trade agreement, and it basically imposed its will in the other two countries. And likewise, the EU is the big fish, and the, and the UK no longer is a big fish. Now, on London, um, it very much depends on all of the financial services and banking regulations that have been sort of pushed down the road with this agreement, which in itself is a good thing, because if we'd actually gone to no deal, then there was no chance that the UK was going to become the best place in the world to list. There's no, it cannot be underestimated, the power of London as a financial centre, but they must be able to work within Europe. The regulations may, must work. I think, once again, as I say, this has just created barriers. I'm fairly sure that moving ahead, these barriers will be overcome, but they have got challenges. Um, from Hong Kong as a listing centre, obviously, from New York. And Europe has obviously always had its eye um, on that, that great financial market that is London. And Brexit perhaps is given a chance to, to place it in the past at Frankfurt. I mean, we, we've seen the examples of big banks moving their offices to Dublin. Um, we've seen Reese Morgan an office on his head in Dublin, which is just particularly annoying. So yeah, I think we've created problems. I, I feel that the UK as a financial listing centre shall persevere. I just think that they've created short-term problems that are going to take a lot of negotiation. But hopefully, as Sandra said, this is done in committee, etc., and it's not done by politicians. OK, well, thank you very much to our two main guests this morning. Uh, that was uh, John Bruce, uh, you just heard of there, of uh, JB Advisory Services. Uh, John's a, a Scottish businessman who's been in Hong Kong uh, for 25 years and also Professor Sandra Marco-Colino, who's an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the Chinese University, who's uh, an expert on European business law. Um, thank you uh, both to our guests. And before nine o'clock, we heard from Brian Wong, who is the founding editor-in-chief at the Oxford Political Review and uh, who's a Time magazine columnist. Uh, one more email um, on this subject, um, just to end on this morning. Uh, Bowen writes, uh, Dear Backchat, uh, it speaks to the goodwill of the UK and the EU 
for their reaching an agreement. Finally, after what must have been extremely complex negotiations, one can likely rely on the good faith of both parties for the successful implementation of the agreement. There will be neither tariffs on goods to be traded between the two sides, nor any quota on the quantity of any type of goods that could be traded, unlike in the deal the EU struck with Canada. And as the UK will also be able to strike uh, free trade deals with other countries, the UK will be in a position to expand its trade with the rest of the world. Certainly, the agreement reached with the EU should give the UK enhanced ability to cope with the difficulties, difficulties it may face over Hong Kong with China. Thank you very much uh, for that, Bowen, and to all our listeners. Um, just before we go, again, a reminder about uh, Backchat uh, Person of the Year 2020. Uh, the list is up on our Radio 3 homepage. Uh, feel free to go there, have a look, uh, follow the verification procedure and vote uh, for one of uh, the ten people and entities on the list. Uh, so quickly run through them once more. Uh, number one, Peter Choi, a veteran of the Battle of Hong Kong in World War II who died in 2020. The Fanling Golf Course, uh, which uh, has been in the news for a number of reasons. Um, Dr Chuang Shuk Kwan, the head of the Centre for Health Protection's Communicable Diseases branch, who gives the daily briefings on COVID-19. The unknown cleaners who've kept Hong Kong clean and safe. Professor Benjamin Cowling, epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong. The newspaper, Apple Daily. David Webb, shareholder, activist and commentator. And uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam, and the frontline health workers in Hong Kong, and finally, uh, Nabella Kosa, an RTHK uh, reporter on the TV side. Uh, like I say, go to the Radio 3 homepage, um, have a look, uh, vote. Uh, the result will be announced uh, next Monday, January the 4th, uh, by Hugh Chiverton, and Hugh will be back uh, in this chair tomorrow, um, uh, presenting uh, Back Chat once again. This morning's co-host was Ada Wong. Thank you very much, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And thanks also to our producers, uh, Michelle and Raphael. Quick look uh, at the weather before we go. So it's going to be uh, mainly fine. Um, visibility relatively low in some areas. Uh, top temperature will be about 24 degrees. Moderate easterly winds weakening during the day. Strengthening from the north at night. Uh, the outlook becoming cold and rather windy tomorrow and on Thursday. Morning temperatures in the urban areas will fall to 7 or 8 degrees on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and it will be a couple of degrees lower in the New Territories. It will be very dry, morning temperatures remaining low over the weekend. Currently, the temperature is at 19 degrees, humidity 79%. To fight the virus together, we must protect ourselves and others and reduce social contact. Stay at home as far as possible. Avoid social gatherings and don't go to crowded places. Work from home if feasible. Don't shake hands with others. We should also avoid meal gatherings. Let's adopt these measures to prevent the spread of novel coronavirus in the community. For more information on fighting the virus, visit chp.gov.hk. Now the news summary with Samantha Butler. 
A Shamshupo district councillor is demanding answers over whether the government was aware of the historical significance of a century-old disused reservoir that was being demolished. Work has been halted at the Bishop Hill site after bulldozers uncovered Roman-style arches. Meanwhile, eight sightseers at the reservoir were fined by police for violating the public gathering ban. The Spanish health minister says his country will set up a registry of people who've refused to be vaccinated against coronavirus and share it with other European Union nations. Salvador Ilia said vaccinations wouldn't be mandatory and the list of those who've refused to be inoculated wouldn't be made public. And Britain has recorded its highest daily total of COVID-19. The medical director of Public Health England said the 41,000 new cases was of growing concern. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Thanks, Sam. And a very good morning to you. This is James Ross with Morning Brew. Through till one. Whole load of great music and great guests with you for the next three and a half hours. Let's start how we mean to go on. 